want you to know I'm coming off a pretty big high. Uh, this past weekend was my birthday, and um, my my uh, family was uh, in creative ways able to kind of just, um, the Lord made it um, happen that Debbie wasn't able to go back and return for her fourth, and we hope final chemo uh, week in the hospital. Um, and that'll make 60, almost 60 days in the hospital since June 10th. Uh, that was delayed because uh, her numbers had not come back up. And so it allowed for uh, kind of a special surprise that we could be together and um, share the time that we did this weekend. Even our son checked in from Perth, Australia, and that was really kind of a bonus all across the board. And um, I'm living high on that and also an In-N-Out burger. We had In-N-Out burgers this weekend. <laughs> yes, yes. Is it, is it going too far to praise God for In-N-Out burgers? I don't know. I don't, I'm just going to say, but there, there are Bible verses on the bottom of the cup, so uh, that might sanctify what I just said. Um, but I, I do want to uh, tell you quickly that um, Debbie's numbers were low, and uh, her final return was postponed to the 15th of November. That was changed over the weekend because, like we've seen before, her numbers stay down hard and low, and it's difficult, and then they kind of pop up out of nowhere, and they did over the weekend. Um, we're still in the weekend, but Saturday was a good day, and uh, we hope that uh, the numbers will show that she's ready. Actually, the doctor has now scheduled it for Wednesday, so we will return for a very significant week, uh, and it's it's a conflict. Uh, if you're on chemo, I know Chris is, uh, my Debbie, a lot of people, um, they can tell you that uh, you start to just feel better. Like she said, honey, if you don't have a huge afternoon, can we go for a walk? I mean, is that, I mean, that sounds little to maybe most of us, but it's something we can't do. And, um, and I said, absolutely, I will, I, we will walk as long as you want to walk. And, and, and she knows that knowing that Wednesday we go back in and then we repeat and it's, uh, it's hard. So anyway, um, Thank you for your prayers for Chris Wilson, my Debbie, Debbie O'Connor. I could list a lot of people, um, but these are people in a, in a very significant fight for, um, you know, their lives. So thank you, and thank you for supporting us. Um, I want to tell you about somebody I've thought about uh, in preparing this message. Um, I continued today uh, with a study that began last week on being tested. I called that tested by God, which for some people might be a little bit uh, on the edge as far as a title is concerned. I don't think so. I think it's in the Bible. Um, but uh, I, I felt like um, it was uh, important to continue that conversation today. So this is part two, if you will. And it got me thinking about... Um, uh, imagine being asked this question. Um, what's it like to live with Jesus? And you're being asked that not as a disciple. You're, at, you're actually being asked that as a younger brother or sister of Jesus Christ. There were six of them, you know, at least six. Um, Matthew 13 and Mark chapter 6 both allude to four brothers by name, and then the sisters were told. So we can guess that's at least two. We just don't know. But these would, some have called them half-brothers, half-sisters, which is correct to say. But 
nonetheless, he had under the same roof, presumably of Joseph and Mary, uh, siblings, brothers and sisters. Um, And now you're one of them for just a moment in your imagination. What would it have been like to have somebody say, hey, I know where you live and I know who you live with. Uh, Your big brother is Jesus. Um, You know, what was it? What is it like? living with him. I, I've thought about that. And I, one thing's for sure, my homework grades would have improved <laughs> if he was my big brother, right? <laughs> I don't get this. Can you fix this for me real quick? You know, and those, um, <clears throat> but there is a brother we know, and um, he's the one that stands out from the rest because he actually became a significant, well-known leader in the so-called Church of Acts, or the first century, or the early church, as it's sometimes dubbed. His name is James, and uh, he was the one that stood up and stood out in Acts chapter 15, which was kind of a watershed moment, if I could take you there for a moment. He, um, the, the gospel was going out. Jesus has died and been buried and rose again and returned to the right hand of the Father in heaven, where he is to this day. But there was a expansion plan that was underway to take this good news of, of sinners having a chance before a holy God because of the forgiveness offered by Jesus Christ. That's still true today. That's the gospel, right? So if you're a sinner, but you're turning to Jesus, you're making the right next move. Your first move was a bummer. Sin's no good for you or me or anybody. But when you turn to Jesus, you turn to the one and only fix, right? Amen? Isn't that true? I mean, you know it to be true if you've turned to Jesus and you've found yourself uh, forgiven. But James is one of these, uh, he shows up at this gathering where um, there was a conflict between some of the Jews of that day who were steeped in Judaism and they grew up believing uh, things like the Ten Commandments and the Law of Moses and circumcision as being an essential to a right relationship with God. So naturally, when they met Jesus, some of them rejected him right away, but others kind of went, That's, this is good, but those things aren't bad. Well, no one said those things were bad, circumcision and keeping the law. But this group of Jews was saying, no, 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 those things are actually as essential as Jesus. You got to do both. And you could sense right there that there's a great divide. It's continental divide. You don't end up in the same place. And there was a breakthrough in that meeting known as the Jerusalem Council that came down in chapter 15, verse 11, that salvation is a free gift. And hear this and write this. And would you do me a favor? Would you do Jesus a favor? Tell everybody you know this, okay? Because it's the gospel in a nutshell. And that is Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles is just a fancy word for non-Jews. So Jews and probably most of us in our gathering today, Gentiles, are all saved the same way. All. There's no exception. There's no exemption. I used to think I was the exemption. You have a nervous chuckle, a couple of you right there, right? But I'm the PK, My dad had an in with God. I figured that was good enough for me. (laughs) And that's not true. There's no exceptions. So here's the deal. 
Jews and Gentiles are all saved the exact same way. And, here, and, how, and what way is that? The undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. And if you have him, you have what he gives. Forgiveness for the thing in the way of your relationship, a normal relationship with him. He'll forgive the sin. So um, there's one other way I want to quickly point to point out with James. Um, I think because I think James was significantly influenced by his time under the same roof with his big brother, Jesus. No one knows how long that time was. But I, I draw this from the letter in the New Testament bearing his name. It's a five chapter letter known as James. Um, and right out of the gate, he rocks it. Okay, that's the language today that teenagers say, like, it's on. It's like, whoa, you hit it hard, and it, it's, it's going to, in baseball terms, it's going to clear the fence. You hit a home run. And James does. He doesn't waste any time. And by the way, you, we went much deeper when teacher John Moore was here and uh, giving me a break. Along the way, he's presented a deep dig in James. And by the way, John's not quite done. So that's coming up this Christmas, and it'll be the wrap-up, and don't miss it, um, because there might be eternal consequences. But anyway, um, anyway, it's been really good. But I'm going to take you just in your memory back to James chapter 1, verses 2 to 5, okay? He said this, and most of you have put this to memory because it's worth, it's what we live today. Consider it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith is producing. Let me stop and say that sentence again. Knowing that the testing of your faith is producing endurance, he said. And let endurance have its perfect result. In other words, don't call a time out. Don't give up and quit and go away. Let the process go on. Okay, James 1, chapter 3 and 4. So that the result of that, you might be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. That's verse 4. By the way, I like to throw in verse 5 for this reason. I don't know a single person that's going through a deep time of suffering that doesn't lack understanding at times. You ask Steve and Debbie today, we're gonna, we've been in it. Our family's been in it. You've been in it in your own way. And you probably have something of a response to the question, why is this happening to you? But I don't know anybody that can say, oh, let me tell you, get your notepad out. Here's three points, and it tells everything. No. Because there's a lack in times of suffering. Peter Kreeft, in his great book, Making Sense Out of Suffering, requires God in heaven to visit us with an answer to that prayer in James 1, 5. If anyone lacks wisdom, in other words, can't make sense out of the test, let him or her ask of their heavenly Father who will give to them freely and without reproach it will be given to them. So wisdom, it's broader than that, but it certainly works in times of testing. So let me, let's walk through those words quickly. How can you count it, consider it joy 
when trials come. How can you do that? Well, J.B. Phillips, by the way, has a great way to say it in his translation. When all kinds of trials crowd into our lives, don't resent them as intruders. What do you do when an intruder comes and you resent them? You turn your back on them and you, you'll have nothing to do with them. You get them out of your life as quickly as you can. He says, don't do that. When trials come into your lives, don't treat them as intruders. He says, in, instead, welcome them as friends. Now, you're not hearing that from a guy that does that very well. <laughs> if you're good at that, I want to I have coffee. I'll buy you coffee. Because I want to hear how to do that better than I do it. Because I'm, I'm not the first, the, the first thing out of my mouth isn't why God, but it's in there. Or how come? Or more personally, because I'm a third born and we get picked on. Why me? You know? My dad's going right. He, it's called historical revisionism right there. But All right. Um, how is that possible to consider it? joy well the answer is found in that little next word that James uses knowing having something clear in your mind another translation says realizing I don't realize most things unless I've thought about them a lot that's what James is saying I'll bet he learned that from his brother knowing knowing what What's required to know in order to have joy? What is it? It's knowing that trials come our way. You ready for it? To test our faith and produce gain and good in our lives. That's why. There's probably a million other lessons in it. But in James' words, that's how he answers it. Knowing. Knowing what, James? Well, knowing that there's this test you're going through is, is for your it's gonna bring good. It will produce gain. God, uh, as we said last week, and I'll repeat it here again, God tests our faith, which by the way. I hope this isn't too much to rock you, but he still does that, and he does it repeatedly. He does. Um, it's why when you go through a hurricane in your life, who do you naturally turn to? I know some people would say, well, I go to the bar or whatever. Um, you know, but most people, they go to the, the person that's known this truth the longest in their life. I, I do that. Um, I go to somebody that I know they are worn. They got, they got beaten bad in a, in a terrible test. But they live to tell about it. They got something to say. Um, it, it, it's knowing that that's ongoing and it's continuing and his purpose is to prove our faith through the test. You get that? Let me make sure you get that. In other words, God 
the, the tests are sent with a bias built into them. He wants me and you to pass the test. Isn't that good? God's not throwing you a test and going, well, man, he swung and missed. You know, wow, that was a lousy performance, Steve. No, God says, okay, we're going to keep working on this. Because I want you to be successful and I want you to be proven through the test. So today is testing some more. Um, there's, a, there's a value that um, God puts on testing in our lives. And it's, it's a value that we captured last week when we talked about, um, you know, uh, the most tested human, I'm going to call him in history. Uh, yeah, Job. He stands out for most of us. And you probably know that his story covers 42 chapters, but that makes almost midway point in his trial, in his test. Chapter 23. Job says something that sort of stopped all the reporters, and they took notes and went, whoa. In chapter 23, verse 10, he says, Job's words, he knows the way I'm going. He's referring to God. And when he has tested me, and he was in the middle of it, when he has tested me, I will come forth as pure gold. That's in chapter 23. The story doesn't end until chapter 42. The test to which he's referred, referring to is correctly thought of as, um, as the image of a, a furnace heat or fire. Though he puts me through furnace heat or fire, it has a purifying effect in my life. Um, you, you've heard the image. It's a, it's a simple one, and it, it's worth um, remembering. It's that smelting, smelting gold. And, and, yeah, we have a great song we sing to it, Refiner's Fire. And it's that smelting of gold. How does that happen? High, high heat. Some other chemicals, some other little splash of this and that, but heat's the core. And, and from that, the impurities rise to the surface, and guess what remains? More and more gold, pure stuff. The stuff we, we want in our lives, if that's a picture of our lives, don't we? I do. I just don't like going through the test. I forget it. Um, by the way, for the record, I, I quoted his words from Job's words from chapter 23, verse 10. Um, he, uh, Job was responding in those words to a critic, one of his three critics. They, they posed as friends, but they became critics that were picking him apart, trying to find the reason for his testing. And this guy's Eliphaz. Um, and Eliphaz um, <clears throat> had just told him the previous chapter. You may not know this. This is amazing. If you return to the Almighty and clean up your life, you will be restored, were his words. So I don't know if you've got a friend like that, but th they're not doing you a favor. If you have been a friend like that, you're not doing anybody a favor. So stop guessing that something's sour in their lives. 
That may be. But isn't that God's to figure out? I'm, I'm not convinced that's, uh, that he needs a lot of help with that. Because somewhere in the testing process, um, Eliphaz was certain he had it. You know, here, here's the deal, Job. It's kind of simple. Just turn back to God. Clearly, you've wandered from him. And by the way, on the way there, clean up your act, and it's all going to get good for you. You're going to be restored. Relationship fixed. Party on, Job. No, no, actually, that's not true. By the way, that may be true in some cases. I don't want to leave that behind. David comes to mind. He was the one in Psalm 32 talking about his very bad night with Bathsheba of his own doing. He committed adultery with her and killed her husband to cover his tracks. That was a bad, bad, bad time for the glorious King David. So he says in Psalm 32, All day long I kept silent about my sin, and my body withered away as with the fever heat of summer. I don't know how you interpret those words except I was going through a real serious bummer in my life. So it's true sometimes. But I have to remind you how Job's story began in chapter 1, verse 1. Job was blameless and upright, we're told, right out of the gate. He feared God and he shunned evil. That's Job. Um, may I be blunt for a moment? Uh, Job never left God. Eliphaz had it wrong. Job never left God. God wasn't testing Job for the purpose of purging the sinful dross from his life. There's no indication of that. Even in his own words at the end, he's going, God, I, I'm clearly a mess. I, I thought I had it all figured out, and I don't. Did his testing make sense? I, I think it's fairly obvious it didn't. Not to Job. Um, so Job was tested and proved as gold. Um, last week we talked about Abraham. And he too passed the test. And I would say he came forth as gold. Uh, that gets us to who I want to talk about for a few moments this morning. A little further. Um, he's a, a, a person on my mind because I've always liked him. He's famous in the Old Testament. He's one of Judah's kings. And he stood out for a lot of reasons. But um, he was, uh, <clears throat> he's someone I would have liked to have lived with. Um, I'd like to have grown up. Maybe had him as a brother. Uh, but that won't be true when I tell you who he is. Um, he was, uh, he was the son of a bad dad, um, a dark and dangerous man named Ahaz. You can read his story. It's all in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. When you read Ahaz, you will find that he's everything you, you, you want to avoid. They belong in prison or worse. They're not good people, his dad. Um, but he, he was so bad that he actually, as a... Um, as an offering of sacrifice to his pagan gods, he sacrificed, we're not told how many, but several of his sons. That's the kind of bad. 
One of his surviving sons is who I admire. His name's Hezekiah. And I've been in the tunnel he built in Israel, in Jerusalem. But that's a side story. He's a good guy. In fact, he's as good as his, bad is, as his dad is bad. Okay? It's that classic story where you look at some person that didn't walk well and you find out their dad did. And you go, what in the world happened here? Or flip it. Um, Hezekiah did much as much good as Judas King from the south. During just right around the time he took the throne, the, the north folded. Um, Assyria, northeast of Israel to the north, came and captured them. But his testing is told in 2 Kings 18. So turn there. I just want you to see him, and then we'll read something in the New Testament and um, have communion and be done. Okay? So 2 Kings 18. He, uh, Hezekiah was one of actually only two kings in the southern kingdom. The kingdom divided way back when Solomon died. There was a north called Israel, the south called Judah. He is a king, one of only two good kings. They're noted as, that actually says in the text of the Bible, he was a good king. Um, the other good king was his great-grandson, Hezekiah's great-grandson, Josiah. Really cool guy. Uh, so, in fact, it's, it's believed by many that as a result of those two, Hezekiah and his great-grandson, Josiah, were in 2 Kings 18. Some of you are still turning. Um, because of their obedience to God and their commitment to renewing the nation spiritually and changing things up, boy, do we need that, huh? And, and, and because of that, Judah survived, the South survived a full 135, 36 years later or longer than the North, their neighbor to the North, Israel. Indeed, in 2 Kings 18, look at verse 5, this, this assessment of Hezekiah. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. That's a verse that is so cool. I mean, don't you aspire? Doesn't it make you want to be somebody in every way with God's help to, to turn out like that? It, 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 if I'm reading that right, it's saying Hezekiah had no equal. Talk about a guy that stood out for, for righteous reasons. It's a great picture. Um, so when he ascended the throne, uh, he was, he was um, 25. You know somebody that's young? Don't dismiss them. We have a 25, 27, and 29-year-old. And uh, somebody blessed our lives years ago when they said of, to one of our kids, that, that could be said of all of them, um, you know, I would, you're on my short list of the most likely people to change the world. Isn't that great? I want to be the guy that says stuff like that. So um, Hezekiah, 25, becomes king. And almost immediately he implements not a few safe reforms, vast reforms. And he did it immediately, including the removal of pagan practices. And it's all kind of captured in the 
verses just before what we just read. He did what was right, verse 3, in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David, that's going way back, did. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones. He didn't put them in storage. He got rid of them, and he cut down the Asherah poles. These are all uh, articles of pagan worship. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. Why did he do that? Because a lot of things that seem really spiritual become iconic and sort of lifeless and turn in, uh, sort of inspire idolatry. It was supposed to stay in the, um, in the, in the, um, the Ark of the Covenant. This, this, these, are, these are important things that tell a story of God, only people just start to worship the snake. Don't worship the snake. Worship the God that sent the snake and the story that represents your deliverance because of the snake. There's no power in the snake. Anyway, so that would explain why he even broke it into pieces and he, and he, and he smashed it and took care of it, okay? So, and then he um, reopened the temple. That's probably the moment everybody stopped and stared. Because his dad, Ahaz, he didn't have any need or use for the temple. So what did he do? He closed it and nailed it shut, the front door shut. I'm tempted to make comparisons in our world today. But when a, when a political leader does crazy like that, like, like Ahaz, hey, you know what? We don't need religion anymore. The state's the religion. I'm the, I'm the God you should look to. You know, that kind of nuts. And to, to guarantee that none of you actually go to that God of Israel, I'm going to nail the door shut. What kind of person does that? Well, that's, that's what his dad did. So he reopens the temple. Look down at verse 6. He, he held fast to the Lord. This is Hezekiah. He did not stop following him. He kept the commands the Lord had given to Moses. And I love verse 7. He, and the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. Assyria had already taken out the north, I told you, up in Samaria. And Hezekiah said, no, no, no. I'm not going to bow down to you, king. It was Sennacherib at the time. Um, I'm not going to. Because he lived for the true God. And then 14 years after he arrived on the throne, if you're doing your math, he's 39 years old. Uh, he and Judah faced the country he led, a great threat. And it came in the form of a test from a foreign foe who had conquered Israel, as I mentioned, many years earlier. And he had conquered many other nations. If you take the time, and I hope you do, it's in your notes where you can read all the details of this unfolding. You will find there were lots of other nations that said, yeah, we were powerless against this massive king, Sennacherib. I mean, powerful. Um, you couldn't resist them. We just caved. Uh, that year... King Sennacherib came planning to conquer the south, Judah, where Hezekiah was in charge, and Jerusalem, its capital. 
That was the plan. Um, his plan was to conquer them, and he had the firepower to do it. Prompting a prayer that you have to turn the page. If you go to chapter 19, and that, like I told you, there's a ton of stuff in between. This Sennacherib was a master of guerrilla warfare. Um, he knew how to get into the, the, the spine of most of Judah and make them scared out of their mind. He was that kind of menacing threat that you just went, you, you cringed, you stayed away from, you, you avoided eye contact with. He's that guy. And um, he came with, we would call it leaflets today, and dropped them from helicopters, right, or planes, saying, hey, you know what? We don't mean you any harm, but if your king doesn't wake up and smell the coffee, you're going down, and everybody in Judah is going to go with him. He was that kind of dirty warfare guy. Um, and then all of that was true, so it prompted a prayer from Hezekiah. Chapter 19, um, look at verse 17. It is true, this is his words, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste all these nations and their land. Th this guy's not making this stuff up. They have thrown their gods into, their fi into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood, stone, fashioned by human hands. So his prayer, Now, Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are God. That's his simple prayer. And God's answer came through Isaiah the prophet. Because he was the holy man at the time. Hezekiah was the political leader. They were contemporaries, we would say. And God, later in the same chapter, sends Isaiah to the king. And look at verse 32. This was Isaiah's report from God to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord says concerning this, this king of Assyria, Sennacherib. He will not enter this city. Or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. So you've got two superpowers, not Hezekiah and King Sennacherib. You've got this foreign king and the living God. And the greater power came that night. That night. And I get a smile on my face because it's one of my favorite verses in this whole story. So you have this king that's going to come with massive armies, right? And we're told that a greater power than all of the Assyrian army would send an angel. Did I mention one angel? Okay. Massive numbers on the Assyrian side, one angel sent on God's side. A single guy. I'm not sure I'd call him guy if he walked in here right now. But a big, massive angel. Okay. So anyway... You got it. Now you're set to read with me. That night, 
everybody, uh, make some noise like your knees are knocking because you're scared to death that we're going down and this is the last. This is the end for us, all right? That night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. Right? When the people got up the next morning, they were all, they were, all they could see were dead bodies. Now, I know that's gross, but this is one angel that goes, here we go. Yes. Is that just the coolest? My gosh. Um. Well, um, if you're Sennacherib, you more than wet your pants. I'm just not going to go there. But, um, And verse 36 gives us a little hint of what's on your mind. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. This is the next morning. I'm sure he left a lot of stuff behind. He just plain hightailed out of there and returned north, east, and stayed, went, went home, basically. Think tail between your legs, okay? Got home and went, whew, that was a close one. <laughs> wow, we're safe now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you got some bad kids because they greeted you this way. One day, while he was worshiping Sennacherib in the temple of his god Nishrach, his sons Adremelech and Sherezer, killed him with the sword <laughs> and they escaped uh, into another land and another of his sons took over bottom line is he ran for his life and he and it cost him his life and you have a a god that does something great so epic you and i would have talked about it forever but i want to quickly call attention to this point hezekiah stood strong he walked well with God. And right on the heels of this, my Bible says in bold print that starts chapter 20, Hezekiah's illness. Wow. This is the time to dance a victory dance. And he gets a diagnosis from the hospital. You're going to die and you're going to die soon. I just don't get that. This is the time. Do you see the, how personal that gets for so many people? You were walking well. You just came off a huge victory. It's all going great. And he's told, you have a terminal illness. This is all of chapter 20. And he did exactly what we have done. cried and he cried and cried and then he prayed and if you look at chapter 20 verse 5 you'll see exactly how it happened God tells Isaiah go back and tell Hezekiah the ruler of my people this is what the Lord the God of your father David says I have heard your prayer I have seen your tears and I will heal you 
And the healing came in the form of 15 more years. 15 more years. I'm not going to hold back and tell you that was so good for him, but theologically it can't be true of Debbie, Chris, or whoever. That's the scripture that has come back to us from the very first days. Is it? Am I, am I over-speaking? No, I don't think so. I'm just simply saying, God, we sang it already. You have done these mighty things before. We're asking you to do it again. You allowed your son to die on a cross. And life after life after life for thousands of years have been changed, have been made new because of what it cost him. Jesus who knew no sin, became sin on my behalf so that I might become the righteousness of God in Christ, says Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21. It's true. I want to tell you one other, I'm going to call this an epilogue. We don't have time to go there. But if you went and looked at this whole story over in um, Second Chronicles, you would see that a different superpower rose up because Assyria got her wings clipped, right, that we just captured. There's another superpower that came from almost due east of Jerusalem. It's known as Babylon. And Babylon, with a kind of a newfound swag, came and wanted to know, hey, Hezekiah, we understand you were sick, but we hear you're better and Man, it went really well with you against those Assyrians, and we want to have you give us a look around. And Hezekiah fumbled. He says, oh, sure, let me tell you. Let me show you around. He showed him the treasury. He showed him the armaments. He showed him all kinds of stuff. But there's this one verse. Would you write this verse down? Because you need to study it and think about it. Okay, Second Chronicles 32 Verse 30 says, Hezekiah, I'm sorry, not 32.30, 32.31. This is on the heels of God, or of, of the scripture saying in verse 30, Hezekiah succeeded in everything he did. Next verse, ready? So God withdrew from Hezekiah to test him. And to see what was in his heart. How did he do? It's kind of one of those epilogues you just wish wasn't there. He, he probably shouldn't have shown him. In fact, Isaiah went, you did what? Showed him all this stuff? You know what? The day's coming when Babylon's going to come and take you out. And that happened years later. 586. It really did. That make Hezekiah bad? No, I think I think Hezekiah was a good man, like I said throughout this. But it's a um, it's a fact that even good people will continue to be tested. They may pass most of the tests and then fumble or stumble. Doesn't make them bad. Just means God's got more work to do in their lives. 
One thing I know from this testing team, um, not only that we're approved by testing, but that testing is painful. I think inherently, um, it, it kind of goes, when you hear the definition, proved by trial, kind of makes sense. It sounds painful, doesn't it? And, and, um, and that means this message this morning and last Sunday's, this isn't a message that's needed at Disneyland, right? Unless you want to call long lines a trial, and it is really actually, but I mean, it's just not. I mean, this is real life. This is when life gets raw and you're tested. I'm tested. We're tested. Um, and it's a God who says, you know what, I'm going to. I'm going to be with you through the test. He said it this way in Romans, and it's the other passage I want you to look at and um, take in as a devotional assignment today. I want you to take in these words in Romans chapter 8 because it talks about, may I summarize it, um, verses 17 to 30. It actually talks about um, the... The creation, the created order is groaning. You and I are part of that order, right? We live in a world that groans. It's not out there. It's true out there, but it's true with us too. It's true physically. It's true for some spiritually. It's true for people that I know very well and love uh, um, relationally and and. And even uh, financially, uh, we groan. That's established. Uh, but Paul said in the middle of this description of how creation has been groaning, the, 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 the tests that we go through are part of that. Um, he says this, For I consider that the sufferings, his word for tests, of this present time are not worthy to be compared. Ready for this? To the glory that is to come. What's that mean? Next month? Maybe a little bit. Next year? Soon? <laughs> Sometime in this life? I don't know about all those, but I do know this. The glory to come is when we are in the presence of the King of Kings. We are safely at home. He says to us, welcome home. And he uses words in Romans and elsewhere to describe what it takes to persevere through the test. And that's the word hope. And we're going to sing a song in a moment when we take communion. It's hope has a name. It's a great song. You're going to like it. Um, but he says, we exalt in our tribulation, another place in Romans chapter 5, Knowing that tribulation, let's call that a test. Tribulation brings about perseverance. You've heard that word this morning. And perseverance, proven character. I'm not done. Verse 5, Romans 5, verse 5. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint for the love of God was poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. 
I want you to ponder those words as you bow your heads with me this morning. And servers, join me here at the front to bring the bread and the cup to all of us. Uh, the worship team, the lights are going to come down. They're going to they're going to draw you into a song that you you know the name of the hope. Hope has a name. You know it. His name's Jesus. And um, I would have failed badly this morning if you left here or you're watching from home and it doesn't become profoundly clear to you. This is not a religious talk. This isn't. This is not a pep rally. This is a, a presentation of a person named Jesus who is our hope in trials, in tests. In fact, he's so present. I've said this so many times, but I believe it as, as much as I know I'm now 63. <laughs> I know, I know Jesus doesn't stand on the other side of your trial or your test and look back and call your name and say, hey, keep coming, keep coming, I'm waiting for you. That is not helpful. He's the God that says, I'm going to enter that test with you and we'll walk it together. I've been through that test. This table represents that test. But I persevered. And I want nothing less than that for you. And I prayed for nothing less than that for my life. We prayed that way. We continue to pray that way. So as you are taking the bread and the cup this morning, I want to encourage you to, um, to, to hold it long enough to kind of imagine Jesus saying, you know, I didn't give up on this. I stayed with it. I persevered. And maybe whisper to him, Lord Jesus, I need your help, and I want you to be my hope as I persevere through this test, whatever that might be. You're going to be served this. We're going to sing it together. Just listen and enjoy this sweet moment of